Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glory and honor, dominion and power be to God forever and ever. Christ is risen. Let us pray. We praise you, great God, for the hope that we have in Jesus, who died but is risen and rules over all. We praise you that we are reconciled to you through your Son. Because he lives, we look for eternal life, knowing that nothing past, present, or yet to come can separate us from your great love made known in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first hymn is number 286, Worship Christ the Risen King. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Let us, therefore, rejoice by putting away all malice and evil and confess our sins with a sincere and true heart. Let us pray together. God of heaven and earth, who has sent your beloved Son into the world to redeem sinners, 
we confess that we are such sinners. We have not loved our neighbor as we ought. We have spurned your ways, delighting in ourselves more than you. We have violated your commands and have chosen death rather than life. Yet you have remembered us with loving kindness even after we fell under your judgment. As you have raised your blessed and holy Son, Jesus Christ, from death to life, so now pardon us of our sin and raise us from death to life. For the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be, known, might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The good news of the gospel is that God has sent his Son to the world so that we indeed might be delivered from our sin and reconciled with him. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ our sin is forgiven. And all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven. Let us say together, Praise be to God. In and through Jesus Christ, you have been given a share in the inheritance of saints in the light. You have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You now live according to a whole new order as citizens of the kingdom of God. In the words of the Apostle, I appeal to you, therefore, to conduct yourselves according to the kingdom of God and not according to the ways of the world. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and of him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back again. And as you wish that men would do to you, do also to them, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. This is God's will for us, and let us say together, Amen. Our hymn is number 275, The Strife is O'er, the Battle Done. Alleluia, the 
rises glorious from the dead. All glory to our risen head. Alleluia. He closed the yawning gates of of praise his triumphs tell Alleluia Lord by the stripes which wounded thee from death's dread sting thy servants free that we may live and sing Please join me now in giving our, bringing our petitions and offering our intercessions for those in need. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, who has given us new life in Jesus Christ, we thank you for joining us with him who is the life of the world, who gives his life so that the world may have a new life, putting to death the old flesh and making us your new people in whom the new life of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ fills us with his life and makes us your beloved and holy people. We bless you, O Father, that you have, been rele- that you have released us from the powers and authorities of this world, and, and now we are subject to the authority and power of Christ. For you have defeated sin, death, and the devil, and triumphed over them in Jesus Christ. And so it is with amazed thanksgiving that we pray to you and ask for those things that we need. Almighty God, hear our cry is to stop the violence and the madness of those powers in this world that wreck and maim and kill and sometimes just seem to be utterly insane. They vainly follow a teaching that belongs to an age that has been overcome by Christ and will pass away. What they do is futile, and yet they act like it is not. We also pray for those who are tyrannized in Ukraine, in Mexico, Syria, China, North Korea, Myanmar, and for those intimidated by violent people in our cities. May the church bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ in this world and the redemption that comes through him. Hear our prayers. Merciful God, we pray you would bless those who work in community health, doctors, nurses, investigators, pharmacists, government officials. Preserve them as they care for the sick. We pray that we'd be able able to maintain our health care here in this country and and help those in other other nations who do not have uh, as much um, resources as we do. Hear our prayers. Loving Father, for the church we pray, your new people created in Christ Jesus. May your people be formed around Christ in every way, including their worship, their lives, their habits and work, everything. May they not submit to teaching and regulations that have been defeated by Christ. 
Keep them from falling into temptation and evil. Hear our prayers. We pray for the churches in Russia and Ukraine and the work of our missionary hero, Hakobor. Bless the preaching of your word. We ask you, O God, to bring an end to that war and bring peace back to that land. We ask that you would convert the unconverted to Christ. Here are our prayers also for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and our church in Beamsville, Ontario, with their pastor, Doug Bilsma, for City Church in Grand Rapids with their pastor, Tony Miles, and Reformation Mission Work in Grand Rapids. Help these churches to grow, and may the sessions overseeing them be able to care for the members there. Build them up, O Lord, in love, in unity, in faith, and strength, the strength of Christ. Here are our prayers for our missions and our churches in in the OPC. Our Father, for our congregation, we do pray, rejoicing in your great salvation in Jesus Christ and his mighty work for us. We pray for your provision and aid for our needs, for all those who are sick, ailing, facing hardship, and for their families who care for them. We do pray for Eduardo and Teddy, for Luca and Terry, Fawn and Jeff, Scott and Becky, Angie, Karen, Kathy, Chris Barker, Shelley's father, Jamie's mother, Barbara's mother, and Mrs. Mesner, as well as others we name to you in silence. Be present in mercy with these your servants, so that strength and health and comfort of soul and trust in Christ may be restored to them in their weakness. And may they then bless your holy name. For those who are distraught and full of anxiety, give them grace, remind them of your providence, and relieve them by your spirit, who assures us of our relationship with Christ and the promises kept for us in him. And help us to become acquainted with our neighbors and be a testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ who is raised from the dead. Our concerns and desires ascend to you through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Let's pray together, saying, O God, who is we are and who we serve, grant us we pray that these offerings may have both the nature and the value of worship. Our prayers, our hymns, our songs, our hearing of thy word, our communion, our hearts, our worship. We also praise you with our witness. We offer them. Come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word. Let us first prepare our hearts and minds to receive this God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly words, your heavenly father, your words are life. And we are so grateful, Father, for the work of your spirit in our lives. We pray now that your spirit would open these words to us, that they would find their intended purposes in our hearts and minds that we would continue to grow in Christ and glorify him. Help us to be more faithful followers of Christ, for we do pray this in his name. Amen. Our first reading comes from Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 31. Listen now to God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and, and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Hariroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out to eat out of Egypt? Is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, 
Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will set glory, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was, the, there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in their Lord and in his servant, Moses. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 114, printed in the bulletin. When Israel went out from Egypt, Judah became his sanctuary. The sea looked and fled. The mountains skipped like rams. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O mountains that you skip like rams. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, who turns the rock into a pool of water. Our epistle reading comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. 
begin God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And then finally, our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other, disciple, the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
The word of the Lord. Last week we left worship with the joy of Christ's resurrection ringing in our ears and sealed in our hearts. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a season in the church calendar. It's not just a day. I think most of us, I grew up thinking it was just the one day, but it's not. It's a season. The resurrected Jesus appeared (coughs) to his disciples over 40 days. And so it is an event that spans weeks. It begins with what is called the first Sunday of Easter. But the season of explicitly celebrating the resurrection continues for five more weeks until Pentecost. So there are a total of six Sundays in the time of Easter or Christ's resurrection. The Puritans would quickly point out that every Lord's Day, the first day of the the week when Christians worship every Lord's Day, is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's true. That's one of the arguments that we don't worship on the Sabbath on the last day of the week like the Jews do, we have moved to the first day of the week because of Christ's resurrection. However, it cannot just be implied when we gather for worship. It must be explicitly proclaimed and celebrated in the life of the church. And so, historically, the church has designated has a designated time in the year when it explicitly sings, prays, listens to God's word, and gives thanks for the resurrection of Jesus. Easter is a season in the church organized around what Jesus has done. It's an event. It's like Advent, actually. Advent is also a season. It's the season of the coming of the Lord, both in his first coming and his second coming. For four weeks in the season of Advent, the church celebrates the other fundamental event of Jesus Christ, his resurrection. I had a theology professor in seminary who asked us what the basic difference was between the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Western churches. And there are a lot of differences, as you may know, a lot of, a lot of things that distinguish one or the other. The uh, Western churches are the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches. The Eastern Orthodox churches are all different kinds depending on what nation they're in, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian, Antiochian, a whole bunch of different kinds. But they all tend to share the same uh, basic features. He put it in terms of, his answer put it in terms of Christmas and Easter. Which one is most important for the Eastern churches and which one is most important for the Western churches, Christmas or Easter? That's how he put it to us. And he told us that for the Eastern Orthodox churches, it's Christmas. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental event. I mean, they're all important and they recognize everything Christ did, but that event is what really stands out for them. And he said for the Western churches... It's Easter. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we put our emphasis. Now, descriptively, it's it's a rather helpful way of making the distinction between Eastern and Western churches. But does it really have to be one way or the other? This professor of mine, I loved him dearly, um, but he did have this habit of making these false either-ors just to get us to think A more balanced way of understanding the events of Jesus Christ makes both his incarnation and his death and resurrection of equal importance. They're both important. They're both fundamental to his work. And don't the Gospels tell us this? They they all start with the stories of of his coming into this world. Mark is very, very uh, brief, but the others are very, uh, have a lot of stories about his 
coming into the world, his incarnation, and they all end with his resurrection, his death and resurrection. The Gospels are framed by his incarnation and death and resurrection. That's what the Gospels built on. The apostles made Jesus' incarnation, his death, and his resurrection the key planks in their teaching and preaching. It's what they went out and proclaimed, along with other things, but those are the, the, the core of it. And that's what we hear this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, last week, on the first Sunday of Easter, we heard the resurrection of Jesus Christ creates new life in this world, and that life has begun in you. Today, we shall hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our moral behavior as his followers. Now, Paul puts it in terms of our baptism and Israel's exodus that we heard the story in the Old Testament. Baptized into Christ, we are baptized into the exodus story of Jesus Christ. And I say story. There are many stories in the world about who people are. Stories, narratives are very important and people rely on them for defining who they are. Some of them are filled with legend and fiction. Other people like to make up stories about themselves. That seems to be the popular thing today, is just make up the story about yourself, who you are and, your, and what you, you think you, your identity is. Those are not the story of our baptism. The story of our baptism is not something that was made up and fit to us or that we make up on our own. Baptism is what you might call the narrative of God's salvation of us in Jesus Christ. So baptism, which Paul mentions in, his, uh, in the text in Romans 6, is the narrative, the story of God's salvation of us in Jesus Christ. And this narrative is about Jesus Christ who was crucified and raised from the dead 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. You'll notice that when Paul talks about that in the first four verses, he uh, specifically is referencing Christ's death and resurrection. We are baptized into the real history of God's act of salvation in our world through Jesus Christ. And there's nothing legendary or fictional about that. Now, let's take a moment and remember the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt since the apostles using the basic elements of that story to talk about our baptism. The people were slaves. They were held in bondage by the harsh tyrant Pharaoh. They could not escape him. They lived to do his bidding and they labored for him. Israel lived under Pharaoh's dominion. However, God remembered his people in, in faithfulness. He remembered them and in grace he rescued them from that tyrant Pharaoh. God struck down the power of Egypt with the ten plagues and he led his people out of the dominion of Egypt by way of the Red Sea. At the sea, God destroyed the grip of the old tyrant of the Hebrews he brought his people through the waters, out of Egypt, into a new land. God would be their Lord, and he would be the one who rules over them, not Pharaoh. And there's a nice little synopsis of the Exodus story with Israel. Now, you may have noticed, um, it's been a while since we've had a baptism in here, but you may have noticed in the baptisms, in the liturgy of our baptisms, there are references to the Exodus story. This is what is said in one of the prayers. Almighty God, we, thank, we give you thanks in countless ways you have revealed yourself in ages past and have blessed us with signs of your grace. We praise you that through the waters of the sea you led your people Israel out of bondage into freedom into the land of your promise. And that's part of a prayer that I often pray when we uh, have baptisms. Well, the reading from Romans this morning is full of the language of the Exodus. Slavery. Freedom, dominion, death and life. 
It's the language of the Exodus, but now it's being related, Paul's relating it to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our being united with him. We are baptized into the Exodus of Jesus Christ. Being united, uh, before we were united to Christ, we lived under the dominion of sin. We were held captive to it. We were unable to break away. We were enclosed by sin. Our whole being was prone to sin. Sin was our master. Sin ruled us and we lived for sin. And it's not that we inwardly resisted this, like there's an external sort of constraint upon us and inwardly we were fighting against it. No, we were were not being forced against our will to do things we did not want to do. We lived in sin. We were in solidarity with all all of humanity that came from the old Adam who sinned in the Garden of Eden. Now, it's kind of like living as Americans. There may be things that we don't like about our country, but we are Americans through and through. We are in solidarity with this life here in the United States. And all you have to do is travel to another country and you realize, oh, there are, these, there are some significant differences about the way these people live and the way they think and do things in the way we do. So we are Americans. We live in solidarity as Americans. And it's like that, that we were in solidarity with sin. We were in that dominion of sin, and we lived in it, and, and uh, it was our life. It was just who we were, part, what was a part of us. But we Christians have been rescued from the dominion of sin. We've been freed from sin. Sin is no longer our master. We live under the dominion of Christ. This is what Paul is telling the church. He's our master, and we serve him. We live in solidarity with Christ. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we, no longer, we might no longer be enslaved to sin. And in our text, Paul repeatedly says, with Christ and with him and united with him and with him and with him and with him and with Christ, he says it over and over and over again. In other words, we're in solidarity and union with Christ. So back to the analogy of being Americans, when people relocate from one country to another, as many of our ancestors did, and some of you even have, they began, they began a new life when you relocate from one country to another. Leaving their residence behind, they take up a new permanent residence in a new country with a new government and a new way of life. Now, this is a little bit ironic that I would use this example with this text from Romans 6 because the African slaves obviously were not brought into a good life. They were, re- they were carried into a new life of slavery. But that's not my point here. My point is a general point that no matter how someone comes into a new country and whenever they relocate or if it's, they're forced to relocate, they begin a new way of life. And that's my point. We have been relocated. Our life has been relocated into Christ And this is the story of our baptism. It's our identity now as Christians. No matter who we were before we were baptized into Christ, we now have a new identity. What has happened to Jesus Christ has happened to us. So Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In newness of life. The once and for all event of Christ dying on the cross and raised from the dead is the reality for us. You who are baptized into Christ are no longer under the tyranny of sin. When you think of your baptism, think of the Exodus. Paul is bringing up the baptism there to make his point, and he's 
connecting it to the story of the Exodus. Now, you need, we need to hear this today, that a decisive break with sin has happened for us who are in Christ. A decisive break with sin has happened for us who are in Christ. And this is usually when, when someone says this, this is when all the questions and objections begin to flood into our mind. And they flood into mine, just like yours. How can this be? How can, we, how can there be a decisive break with sin for us when we still struggle with sin? We try to stop sinning, but we still fail. We many times fall back, fall into that. And it sure feels like sin rules our lives, right? So we must stop for a minute before we race ahead. Stop and listen to the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. Put aside all your objections and your own perspective on sin for a moment and listen to the Word of God. Because the Word of God authoritatively tells us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what has happened to us who were baptized into Christ. And it says that, we've, that there's been a decisive break with sin. The basis for this break is Jesus Christ who was crucified and raised from the dead. Paul says, For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so it all comes down to not your personal experience and not all your, the objections that come into your head and not what other people tell you. It all comes down, as Paul says, to Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus came into the dominion of sin. He joined us in or under sin. Not that he personally sinned himself, but he willingly put himself into the realm of sin. The Bible in other places says he bore it. He knew sin. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came under the rule of sin and death, and he died under its weight. But when he died, he came out from under it. When Jesus was raised, he was raised into a new life, a new way of existence. Jesus' resurrection involves a transformation. And this is one of the serious problems with the denial of the resurrection. And there have been those who've found clever sort of arguments against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've said that Jesus was revived or resuscitated after he was taken down from the cross. That's a very ancient argument against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He became unconscious conscious from the pain and loss of blood, and the soldiers assumed he was dead, so they stopped their you know, the watch of him. And afterwards, his disciples carried him away, and, and he recovered. He wasn't fully dead, and that was the argument. Uh, but this is not what the gospel has proclaimed to us, right? It's, he, he really died on the cross. He was truly raised. It's not the testimony of Scripture. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the testimony of Scripture. The church has uh, opposed this kind of explanation of Jesus' resurrection, even when it's surfaced and resurfaced within the church. And it's not just because it's against the proclamation of the gospel and the apostolic doctrine of the church, but it also undermines our being Christians. If no transformation has occurred in our existence in this world of sin, if Jesus came under the dominion of sin and stayed there, just simply was resuscitated within it, even after he was crucified, then there's no new life with him. It's just more the old life. And if there's no new life for Jesus, then there's no new life for us. So the church opposes this kind of uh, argument against Jesus' resurrection for many reasons. In fact, Jesus was raised from the dead into the new life of God. A decisive break has occurred. 
So I always try to think of an analogy for that, and, and the, I always come back to a stick, maybe a big stick, but a big dry stick, and you step on it and it snaps under your feet. That's the kind of break that's happened with sin. A snap occurred in this world when Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Jesus is no longer under the dominion of sin, and neither are we who have been baptized into Christ. Some have tried to reconcile this with their own interpretation of the Christian life. It's been said that we Christians live under two masters, struggling within us, and it's up to us to choose which one we will serve. As if we have one foot in the old dominion of sin and the other foot in the new dominion of Christ and we're being pulled back and forth. Well, to be blunt, to be blunt this is not listening to what Paul is saying. We must get this straight before we go on and talk about our sin. Yes, we still struggle with sin. There's still sin that we have to deal with in this world. But we've got to get this decisive break straight before we start talking about the sin. Your new life with Christ is not based on your experience of sin. That's not what it's based on. If it is, you should feel utterly defeated. But it's not based on that. It's based on the victory of Jesus Christ. It's based on the decisive break that he has caused. It's not based on the presence of sin with which you still struggle. It's not based on your own power to defeat sin. It's not based on what others have told you about your sin. Your new life with Christ is based on what he has done and what the word of God tells you. So Paul says, you, must, you also must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And that word reckon comes from bookkeeping. Yes, they kept books back in the day. Add it up, says Paul. If Jesus Christ has died to sin, if he is no longer under the dominion of sin, and he was raised into the new life of God, then the same thing has happened for those who have been baptized into him. It's what we say today, do the math. In Christ, a transformation has happened to us. Our interpretation of the Christian life needs to be corrected by the word of God. And so this morning, there is that correction that comes from our text. The new life of Christ has a new morality for us. Walk in the newness of life, Paul says in Romans 6. Before we were baptized into Christ, we lived according to the morality of the old life of sin. We yielded ourselves to sin as instruments of wickedness, as Paul says. The morality of the old life is well known in this world, and in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul calls it out. He refers to it. It's a life of worshiping other gods. It's misdirected sexual desire. It's covetousness. It's envy, hatred, murder, arrogance, deceit, lack of compassion, stealing, insolence toward parents and proper authority, selfishness, strife, fornication, and on and on and on it goes. This is the morality that we lived in the old life of sin. Now that we are baptized into Christ, we are raised into the new morality of his life. And scripture also lines this out for us. It's a life of the worship of God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. It is also putting the other person above yourself, as Paul says in Philippians 2. It's a life of self-restraint. It's a life of humility. It's working for peace and patience. It's being patient. It's a life of chastity, sexuality rightly directed, gentleness, and more and more and more and on it goes in Scripture. Because we are united to the risen Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the rule of sin. We are able to act according to the morality of Christ's new life. Not perfectly. 
There's still sin and temptation in this world. The old habits of sin persist. Yet that is not our life now that we are united to Christ. Now I thought about finding an example or one or two examples of Christians living the new life of Christ in this world. And there are millions of examples. And if, if, I, had the, if I had the practice of using you all for examples, I could pull out stories from your lives that I've heard where you're doing that. You're living the new life of Christ in this world. But the new morality that comes from the resurrection might sound and often doesn't look that different from the good things that non-Christians do, the good behavior non-Christians do. Uh, So it often looks somewhat the same, and we're left thinking, well, is there really any difference? So I decided to bring up Sigmund Freud. Freud rejected religion, and in particular Christianity. He had a a thing against Christianity. He called it wish fulfillment and an illusion. In one of his essays, he takes the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself to task. Now, you, you remember Jesus used that commandment to sum up the second table of the commandments. In fact, our confession uses it that way, that the first command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and the second Love your neighbors yourself, and in that, the law is fulfilled, right? So uh, Jesus used that as a fundamental, foundational command for our moral life. And he gave this command to his disciples to sum up their moral action according to his new life. He says, a new commandment I give to you, and he uses that command. Now, for Freud, our love is deeply personal and valuable, It's not just something that you throw away, you just throw over here and there. Our love is something personal and valuable. So the command to love your neighbor, he saw it as an ideal imposed by civilized society that cannot be followed. It cannot be followed. In fact, he says, we would have done a whole lot better in society if we had told people, this is a great ideal, but you won't be able to do it. He thought that was was a better way to go. So he, he makes these two arguments against love your neighbor. First, he says, it imposes duties on me for whose fulfillment I must be ready to make sacrifices, right? If you're going to love someone else, love your neighbor, then there is going to be sacrifice required of you. Therefore, he says, if I love someone, he must deserve it in some way because my love is personal and valuable. I'm not going to just throw it away. And so if I'm going to love someone else, they have to deserve it. But if he's a stranger to me, and if he cannot attract me by any worth of his own or any significance that he may already have acquired for my emotional life, it will be hard for me to love him. And second, Freud rejects love your neighbor because not merely is this stranger in general unworthy of my love. He says, I must honestly confess that he has more claim to my hostility and even my hatred. He seems not to have the least trace of love for me and shows me not the slightest consideration. And you know what? As far as Freud goes, he's got a point. Humanity is aggressive, and people take advantage of each other. And how many times do we face that? Most people we meet do not deserve our love. The morality of loving your neighbor is naive at best. However... Jesus loved us and gave up his life for us who were unworthy of his love and even acted aggressively against him. Raised from the dead, Jesus frees us from slavery to sin and our own selfishness so that we are able to love our neighbor and love the stranger and our enemies 
even though quite often they don't deserve it. You see, that's the nature of his love, and that's the kind of love that we have in his new life. Because Jesus died and was raised, we are able to love in the new life of Christ, in the new life of Christ, love others in this world. But it's rooted in Christ's love for us. You have been raised up into Jesus Christ's new life. Go forth and live in the newness of his life. And as we come to the table, you are strengthened by the sacrament to do so. Let us pray. As you have set, set us free from the bondage of our sins, give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn, as we come to the Lord's table, is number 266, Come Ye Faithful, Raise the Strain.
diaconal offering today. The ushers, please come forward and reflect that. promise that comes from Scripture, particularly in Revelation. Let him who is thirsty come, let him who desires to take the water of life without price. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There's an offer to quench our thirst here, to quench our hunger. It comes from our Lord himself. And he established this meal to seal his word to us and to quench that hunger. So we receive Christ as he makes himself known in scripture, sermon, and sacrament. And having again heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon, let us now come to his table and receive his gifts. All who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our members in good standing of a Christian church are welcome to come and join us at this table. Do join me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and our salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is indeed right and our duty and our joy always and everywhere to give you thanks, Almighty and Eternal Father. And in these, in these days when the church explicitly celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do so with joyful hearts, with the memory and the joy of participating in these wonderful works. For you created us in your image, and although we sinned against you, Jesus Christ, your Son, by the mystery of his passion and the victory of his resurrection, conquered the powers of death and hell and restored in us the image of your glory and is perfecting that. Through Jesus, you have placed us once more in that wonderful relationship with you. and You've opened to us the gate of eternal life. And so in the joy of this time of celebrating Christ's death and resurrection, earth and heaven resound with gladness and the whole host of heaven and all the powers of creation sing forever the hymn of your glory, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. 
Lord, you are holy indeed. You are the source of all holiness. Grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your will that the bread that we break and the cup we drink may be the communion in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. And so, Father, calling to mind his death on the cross, his perfect sacrifice made once for the sins of the world, rejoicing in his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, and looking for his coming in glory, we celebrate this memorial of our redemption. And as we offer you this, our praise and thanksgiving, we bring before you and, and pray that the cup and the bread would be used by you to feed us and to strengthen us and to assure us of our, our presence, uh, of your presence with us. May your Holy Spirit be upon your people and gather into one in your kingdom all who share this one bread and one cup so that we in the company of all your holy people may praise and glorify you forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. We make our thanksgiving and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Blessed Father, your Son, who made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, open the eyes of our faith that we may see him in all his redeeming work, who is alive and reigns now and forever. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The final hymn is number 263, Lift High the Cross.
May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. blessed today to have a, I hesitate to do with old friend, That's, that implies something that I don't want to imply, but a friend from of old, uh, Kara Gully, Kara, no, no, Kara, I'm sorry, Reynolds. Reynolds, I know, I was, for folks that don't know your married name, I'm getting there, jeez, jeez, jump on me, Kara uh, Gully, now Reynolds, uh, is visiting our church today, she was um, heavily involved when we were first getting started uh, in the church. And I know um, some of us who go back just a few years ago when that happened uh, will remember Karen. So please uh, welcome. We're glad to, you're here. And uh, please uh, take some time to catch up with Kara um, and, uh, and uh, enjoy that time. Um, in terms of announcements... Uh, Today we will have our Christian education on the Reformed tradition and digging deep into it. Uh, Also, this Thursday night we will have our Bible study on on learning how to read the Bible and view it as a whole. Uh, And then lastly, uh, next Sunday will be our fellowship meal here at the church. I got through it. Did I forget anything? Heidi Wilson. It's Frida's birthday, and I know she watches. She watches. She watches. Now, we could sing happy birthday, but the only thing that's going to get picked up is my voice, which will, will, will definitely not be a happy birthday for Frida. So uh, I will just say... We want to sing to her. We've already discussed it. Let's come. Well, come on up here then. We need some singers up here. And I'll stop. Now, this does say on it, resist the temptation to move the microphone, but you got to come up here. It's got to be by the microphone. I got to take my glasses off so I look better. Well, I'll get around. Okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're not performing. We're giving. We're not performing. We're giving. Okay, happy birthday, Frida. Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Frida. Happy birthday. Okay. 
one comment about the class today. We were all set to go with the youth. I call you guys the youth. Um, your class is all set. And then Mr. Kelly got a fever and he's at home. So uh, oh, Mr. Klaus is gone. So you can join us and we'd love to have you. Okay. All, all, all kinds of firsts here today. So, um, all right, well. Uh, if there's no other announcements, we will go ahead and break, and then we'll gather back up here at a quarter two for our Christian ed time. Thank you.